Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Well, it's good to be with you all again. Looking forward to the month of June. Um, as some of you are just popping on, uh, we're going to be finishing Exodus, and then we get the the fun privilege of uh, going through Leviticus. So uh, we're excited. Um, maybe we're a little bit nervous because uh, of just the challenges of Leviticus, but it's going to be fun. We're just going to tackle it head on. So, well, before we just jump in, I just want to remind us all of our uh, memory verse for the for the month. And that is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 to 20. I'll just read it for you and uh, feel free just to read it along if you are memorizing it. Uh, or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. And uh, this week we're going to be finishing the book of Exodus. I'm sure it's been it's been amazing. I, I can only guess, but going through the entire book of Exodus, I'm sure has been just fascinating. But uh, today in Exodus chapter 32, it's going to actually mark a major shift in the story of Israel and her relationship with God. So I really want you to pay attention to that. If you have your Bibles in front of you, um, you know I we're going to read a, a few verses this morning. Uh, but really, I want you just to follow along as I just break down these chapters uh, and verses. Um, just follow along as I make reference to certain uh, verses. You'll be able just to, as you're reading through Exodus 32, um, you know, you'll just, you'll notice where I'm referencing as we go. So just have that in front of you as well. But like I just said, here we experience a very major shift happening uh, in the in the story of Israel, the, the honeymoon period of their relationship is about to end uh, because Israel is about to fail God in a pretty big way. And as you've been studying, you know, Moses has gone up to uh, the mountain of Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And the last several chapters, you know, God has been giving him the law, writing these this law on the tablets of stone. And for the last few chapters, you got a very inside look at what the law entails. Uh, but here in Exodus 32, uh, we see a contrast taking place between what is happening up on the mountain and what is happening on the desert floor. We've really gotten a look at, you know, the conversation happening with God and Moses and what's happening on the mountain. Uh, but now you can just imagine the camera sort of shifts back down to uh, what's happening uh, at the bottom where all of the, the people of Israel are as they wait for Moses to return. And so, in a sense, it's also very symbolic of the contrast between God's presence uh, versus the presence of sin. And you'll begin to see, uh, you know, maybe a noted uh, distancing between God, the presence of God and the presence of sin because of what happens uh, in this chapter today. So here today in Exodus 32, 33, we'll get to see what sin looks like from God's perspective. 
And what will be a, a continuing theme um, for you know the rest of the book of Exodus, and then really Leviticus just takes on a whole different dimension of this, is just how seriously God takes sin. And when you see how seriously God takes sin, uh, well, it makes just the grace of God even that much more amazing. We'll see Moses begin to take on a new role as leader, and that's the role of intercessor. Uh, and he'll begin to, he'll need to intercede on behalf of the Israelites uh, for their very lives and asking God to spare them. Uh, but he's not just interceding on behalf of the Israelites. He'll be interceding for God's presence to go with him. Um, and we'll talk more about that, about, you know, his pleading with God for God uh, to go with them and not to, uh, you know, to really to not keep a distance between them and the people. Moses realizes the importance of having God lead them. And uh, he really, really acts as he really acts as an interceder, but really is beginning to really shine in his role as mediator in these chapters of the mediator uh, between God and uh, and the people of Israel. So, you know, the stories are, today are going to invite you to examine the seriousness of God's holiness and how serious uh, sin is to God. But it's also going to invite you to examine how in Christ and his death on the cross, we not only see how far God will go to deal with our sin, but we'll also see the depths and the heights of the love and grace of God for his people. And then finally, as we next chapter in Exodus 33, as we look at the role of Moses interceding um, to God, I want you to also recall and, and remember how Jesus is our true and better inter intercessor. You know, Hebrews 7.25 says, and this is speaking of Jesus, um, therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Isn't that beautiful? Well, I would love if somebody here on the call and uh, feel free, read, let's just read uh, the first 10 verses of Exodus 32. And I think the first 10 verses will give us the, the framework for the events that take place. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, make us gods. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made it a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, or your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone 
that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So, you know, we realize how without proper visible leadership, people can fail and people often fail. And sometimes we, even the most holiest of people, such as Aaron, can be persuaded to do things that are contrary to their beliefs and their testimony. And the people are getting anxious uh, about Moses's absence. And so, you know, they say, they come to Aaron and say, come, let make us gods who will go before us. And, you know, this request, this desire re reveals their inadequate faith in time of waiting. You know, I, I was thinking about this and how tribulation, you know, times storms of life are not often, we, we think that they build faith, but I don't think they build faith as much they, as they reveal faith. That when storms do come, it really reveals what we built our lives upon. But the good news about storms and tribulations is that when we have genuine repentance and a heart to change and grow, then those storms can be learning experiences that help us to rebuild our foundation. Um, and so they really just didn't have the faith. Uh, their faith was found wanting. Uh, they needed to grow. You can just really see the immaturity in their faith in God at this point. And the goal that they used, you might, if you're, uh, if you have that type of mind, might be inquiring why they had so much gold out in the desert. <laughs> uh, these these uh, poor uh, slaves. Uh, how where did they acquire so much gold? Um, well, the gold that they used were the, a gift from God um, that the Egyptians gave to the people of Israel as they were leaving uh, Egypt. It was a, a sign of God's favor that he would that they would give him this gold. Just they asked for it and the people of Egypt gave it to them. And this gold would be used to help, you know, build God's kingdom in the, the land that God was bringing them. But instead they used it to, to build an idol. I think just that alone is just, uh, I think we can represent, uh, we can understand the symbolism in what I just mentioned of just taking God's uh, blessings and just squandering them. You know, I think of the prodigal son and just taking his father's inheritance and just uh, spending it on nonsense. And they make this golden calf. It's a young bull to symbolize uh, power. So that was what the, the young bull represented. And ironically, as Moses is uh, receiving the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, that Israel was in the process of breaking the first of these commandments. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. And you really see the writer go to great lengths in this passage to show that Israel was unable to keep the covenant that God had made with them at Sinai. And I mentioned earlier that this story today of the golden calf, it serves as a transition point because the remainder of the Pentateuch, and uh, feel free to mark this and, and watch for this, the incident of the worship of the golden calf will cast a dark shadow across Israel's relationship with God. Uh, much in the same way how the, the account of the fall in Genesis 3 marked a major turning point in God's dealing with humankind. So and how Genesis 3 marks a major turning point, uh, this golden calf marked a major turning point in Israel's uh, walk with God. You know, some have questioned what the golden calf represented. Uh, we won't get too into this because some people, some commentators really just jump into the weeds on this. But the question is like, was this representing um, idolatry, like trying to represent an image of God? Or was this more like a polytheism, like just making another God that they were worshiping? And um, if you're the type that really, really likes to explore that, feel free. Uh, but I would just uh, just let you know everyone know that really it, 
most seem to understand this as an attempt to represent God uh, with a physical image. Uh, it's more idolatry rather than polytheism. And uh, one of the reasons for that is how idolatry is one of the sins that is warned against repeatedly throughout scripture. And it seems to be a repeated theme in the hearts even of uh, worshipers of God. Just we continue to want to make images and, and idols. Well, perhaps Aaron realizes what he has done. We don't know. But he calls a festival to the Lord. <laughs> we don't know if that's to try to like atone for what he's just done. Um, most likely not realizing wrongdoing, but he's, he's following through on the idolatrous worship of the people by calling this festival. And after making this attempt to honor the Lord with their offerings, uh, in verse six, it says the people, you know, began to satisfy their own desires. And what they were doing was they were proceeding to indulge in all sorts of sinful behavior. So you can think of all, you know, the sorts of just wild sinful behavior that, uh, people of this, you know, primitive people were take part in. This is what they were doing in, a, in an attempt to honor God, if you can imagine that. We get the opportunity now to see what sin looks like from God's perspective. So now think about, you know, looking down from the mountain at the people of Israel. The Lord gives us this window by, by saying to Moses exactly what he sees. He says, they've turned from what I've commanded them. Uh, one of the, the words used is, is corruption. The same word uh, corruption used uh, to describe the people of Israel was the same verb used to describe the people living in Noah's day. So they've turned from what I've commanded them. They become corrupt. There are stiff-necked people. But because of Moses' intercession and appeal to God's promises, uh, God has compassion on the people. And, you know, God's promises will play a very big role in the story of redemption of Israel. Um, you know, why does God redeem his people? Well, God made promises to them. And I'm sure you can recall many of those promises uh, in the story of Israel earlier on. But God was very angry with his people. But what does that anger mean? Like, why, why was God so angry? You know, was this a test? Was God testing Moses by saying, leave me alone? And I, my, my, I wonder is that, is God's anger, could it be both that it's testing Moses's love for the people and Moses's willingness to stand in the gap, but also at the same time, a revelation of the, the seriousness of God's holiness. So that the anger is not false anger, that God's like trying to pretend to be angry to see if Moses will intercede, but that it's both a test of Moses's love and the, and the seriousness of God's holiness. But in his role as divinely raised up mediator, Moses appeals to the Lord. He first reminds God of the special covenant of the relationship with his people that he, God, has initiated. And Moses appeals to God's need to keep his name holy and trustworthy. And then finally, he appeals to the great patriarchal promises from uh, all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 12. So Moses is you know, recalling the promises that God has made. And as a result of Moses, you know, championing the Lord's cause, it says that the Lord relented. And that, and this word relenting, uh, it's a, here's a fancy word for you. It's an anthropomorphism, which is a word that just means a description of God in human form. And th the aim of this is to show us that he can and does change in his actions and his emotions to men and women when given proper grounds to doing so. 
you know, so God changes his ways. And, you know, you, you, the, the actually the appropriate word to use here is repent, but not repent in, a, in that God is repenting of any sin that God has done, but to repent in the, in the sense of the word that God has changed his ways. Something has influenced God to change course, not out of, uh, uh, you know, conviction of sin, but out of his love uh, and his promises for his people. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to um, just pay attention to this. What are the grounds of God repenting? What are the grounds? When does God change his ways? This is important. There are three things we see here, and I think this is applicable to all of us in our in our life. Number one is intercession. That when people seek God in prayer and cry out on behalf of, of another or themselves, intercession number two repentance genuine repentance on the heart of a person saying i'm sorry you know i want to change my ways i don't want to live that way and then number three is compassion god will change his ways just based on his compassion on his on who he is just that god is slow to anger and you know he's he's a, he's compassionate full of grace full of mercy but in verse 17, and this is, if you're wondering where we are in the story, we're in verse 17. We learned that uh, Joshua has also gone up the mountain with Moses, uh, perhaps halfway up, not the full way. But as they're coming back down, Joshua mistakes the noise of the people uh, who are indulging in all sorts of sinful behavior as war, that they think, he thinks there's war happening uh, at the bottom of the mountain. And Moses dis wisely discerns otherwise. In the wickedness of the people in which he had just interceded and pleaded with God for, now, now you see the anger of God sort of be transferred onto Moses, <laughs> where now it's Moses is the one who's angry. Um, not only, and he breaks the stone tablets. You know, this breaking of the stone tablets, um, we often think about it, maybe it's our Sunday school imagination. In fact, I think a lot of our, our understanding of the Old Testament, if you are grow, grew up in Sunday school, comes from Sunday school imagination. <laughs> um, but uh, instead of just seeing the stone tablets being broken, it's just, oh, he's just an angry outburst. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's meaning in it. It's to symbolize the breaking of God's covenants by the people. And Moses goes down and quickly breaks up the calf and the festivities and he takes the calf and he burns it and he grounds it to powder and he scatters it across the water in which he makes the Israelites drink this water with the, the burnt up uh, pieces of gold. And Aaron's response, so you see Moses just, you know, taking this sin very seriously, but Aaron's response is that it is actually an example on the other side of how often we fail to take responsibility for our sin. So what should Aaron have done? Well, repent and confess his sins. But what does Aaron do? He makes excuses. He makes excuses on behalf of himself and the people. He says things like, you know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, we don't know what happened to you. Um, this calf just sort of appeared. That's my favorite one. It just appeared as if it was miraculously made. I don't know where it came from. It just appeared out of nowhere. Uh, but the people were out of control. They were running wild is a, is a, is a meaning of one, of one of the verbs used. They're running wild. And this is quite the contrast to what you will see when you get to the book of Numbers. Uh, so I guess that would be, uh, I want you to remember this date. When, you, when we begin the book of Numbers, 
You'll notice that they leave the camp, they leave the mountain in an orderly fashion under much control and order. And that was done on purpose to show how God's law, giving it some time, would begin to work and had purpose and really begin to organize the people. But before the law had taken uh, place, uh, before the law was really, really instituted to the people, you see the sense that they're out of control and they're running wild. And so this is also, again, another wordplay taking place between this incident and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. So it's contra it's sort of comparing the nakedness of man in the, uh, in the garden and then Israel's running wild in the uh, wilderness. But, you know, remember Proverbs 29, verse 18, uh, you know, in the King James Version says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Uh, another translation, your translation might say, where there's no revelation, the people cast off all moral restraints, which is probably a, a, better, a better translation. Um, in other words, they, where there's no revelation, uh, they become ungovernable. Uh, that's perhaps a verse that our culture needs to hear uh, very, very badly. Uh, where there's no revelation, the people just become ungovernable. They cast off all moral restraint. And to cast off, cast off all restraints, it's this idea of loosening or uncovering. You know, it's, it, you, it almost gives a um, connotation of this religious prostitution that's connected with false worship. But Moses realizes that decisive action is needed, and he challenges the people. He says, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. He kind of rallies the people. If you're for the Lord, come to me. And, and it says that the Levites, not all of them. So it's not like every single Levite went, but the Levites went to Moses. And what Moses does is he commands them to arm themselves and to go back and forth, killing the people of Israel. And note that this is not a command of Moses, but this is a command of God. This, it's not Moses making the command, but God making the commands. You know, if you, uh, I just want to give you two verses just for you to, well, we're, we don't have a lot of time left, but Matthew 10, 37 and Luke 14 to 26 are, I want you to maybe later go read those verses and just contrast the holiness of God uh, in those verses with the, uh, this event taking place here. Uh, you might see some similarities. Um, but, you know, it's, it speaks of how following God then, as of now, sometimes it will require you and I to deny one's family and to be cut off from them. You know, if, if I, uh, and then, so I just, those verses, you can go read them later, but, you know, a necessary part of being holy to be set apart is obedience to the Lord's commands to have to leave family and experience even the forsakenness of family. Uh, which, but, and this is what the Levites are doing. They're having to step away from family and even um, put family to death as a result of, of being for the Lord. Uh, but the Levites, they wholeheartedly follow God, not just Moses, they're following God and they're counting uh, other ties of kinship of family as nothing in comparison to following God. So what happens next? Well, Moses goes back up the mountain and he even offers himself to God as an atonement for their sin. He actually offers to be the substitute. So that's another uh, foreshadowing of Christ, you know, as, a sub, as our substitute. Um, he offers, says, take me instead of the people. I'll give my life for the people. And Moses ascends the mountain a second time. He intercedes on uh, Israel's behalf. 
And God refuses Moses' offer. He says, whoever has sinned, I will blot out of my book. And this is really where things get interesting. Um, where in the past it was the Lord who led the people of Israel and Moses was just a servant. But from then on, God says to Moses that Moses and an angel are to lead the people of, of Israel. And I'll, I'll make an, another more about that in just a moment. But, um, you know, just in conclusion of 32, um, these events are probably not strict in chronological order. And it mentions a plague fell on the people. Uh, the plague may have very well been the slaughter, the slaughtering of the uh, the three thousand people mentioned. So the Levites, three thousand people were um, put to death the day that God gave Israel the law. Uh, but I want you to contrast that with uh, how many were yesterday was Pentecost Sunday, and we celebrate the outpouring of the, the giving, the Lord giving the church the Holy Spirit. Well, does anybody want to take a guess how many on the day of Pentecost were added to the church on the day of Pentecost? Does anyone remember? Over 3,000. 3,000 were added to the church on the day that God gave the Holy Spirit. How many were subtracted from the people of Israel the day the law was given? Well, 3,000. So we see 3,000 subtracted on the day of the law. 3,000 were added the day the Lord gave uh, the spirit to the church. Uh, so very quickly here, because we are running out of time, I just want to make a few, just a few mentions of 33, because it is attached to 32. Um, it's a continuation of the narrative. Uh, um, and I think it's important, but I'll try to really summarize it as quickly as possible. So Moses has now returned to the mountain to speak with God. And this chapter, uh, in sort of in summary, has several indications that the author now wants to show Israel's relationship with God, how it's been fundamentally affected by this great sin of worshiping the golden calf. By him returning, all is not the same as it was before this event happened, and that there's a growing distance that's taking place between God and Israel that wasn't there before. And there's a few indications of this in this uh, chapter, uh, which I'm sure you've all read. The first indication, and I mentioned this before, was the angel which God sends before his people. And this is significant because the angel that God sent before them previously indicated that God's presence was going with his people, that the angel that went before them was an angel of God's presence. That, and God's reason now for sending this angel to lead them, that if he were to go with them, he might destroy them. So... <laughs> Uh, this angel that he, he now designates to lead Israel represents not so much God's presence as a separation now of God's presence. Um, a second indicator of the separation is the tent of meeting where Moses, uh, this tent was not the same as the tabernacle, which God is instructing them to build as God's dwelling place. But this was a tent uh, that was a meeting place with God to be put outside of the city, outside of the camp some distance away. And it was only for Mo Moses and Joshua. And so you see this really, um, you know, imaginative picture of the people standing outside their tents, watching Moses and Joshua go uh, meet with the Lord uh, outside of the camp. And then the third indicator is the way in which the passage portrays God's glory. So originally before this, um, you know, the there was, we, when we see God's glory, uh, it was, you know, God's, um, so God's original descent upon Mount Sinai was to display his glory before all the people. And now the second time God speaks to Moses, the display of his glory is quite different. 
So first, there was no display of God's glory before all the people as there had been earlier. And now only Moses could look when God's glory passed by. And so second, even as he looked upon God's glory in this passage, Moses's face needed to be covered by God's hand. So you could only see the back parts of God's glory. And then the next chapter, which we'll, we'll look at tomorrow, it recounts how Israelites, they could only see God's glory as it's shown on the face of Moses. So now they could, while they once saw God's glory, God was displaying his glory. Now they could only see a reflection of the glory of God. And so uh, with a change in how God's glory was displayed, we see also a changing of the purpose in God revealing his glory. So the first, um, in the first revelation of God's glory at Sinai, uh, Moses explains to the people that it, its purpose had been to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But after the golden calf, the purpose of God's glory was not to demonstrate and test uh, the fear of the Lord, but it was actually to reveal his compassion. So God now is um, the purpose of him showing the people his glory is that to show them that God will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have mercy and compassion. And so consequently, we'll look at tomorrow, and I won't steal Mel's uh, thunder, but we see a very special emphasis being given to the importance of God's grace. So finally, just in conclusion, what does Moses do as a result of this? Well, Moses is concerned. <laughs> He's very wise in this moment. And he discerns that by God sending another angel, this promise of an angel, this is problemsome to them. He believed that the angel that God was designating to lead them was no substitute for the presence of God. And what does Moses do? He reminds God of, of who God is, of God's ways, of what God has said. He reminds of what God has said. I know you by name, speaking of Israel. I have singled you out. I have chosen and selected you. And Moses asks the Lord for a demonstration of his love, that he might know and serve him better, in verse 13. And what does the Lord respond by promising? He says, my presence and my face will go with you. And with this new word, the, what the Lord does is he actually reinstates the angel of his presence, in whom he has invested his name as the leader of Israel's way to Canaan. So in verse 15, you know, Moses beseeches God, don't send the people out without your presence. Don't, don't like put us out without your presence to lead us. Moses knew, and I think, you know, this is a great takeaway for us, that, go, without God's, that God's presence was essential to Israel's testimony before the world. Without God's presence, there's no God's people. They're, they're just like, they're like everyone else. They're no different. They're the same. Without God's presence, they would be indistinguishable from the rest of the world. But with God's presence, they would be marked. They would be set apart. They would be, you know, they would be different in the sense that difference would be something that would lead other people to God. That, that was the response the Lord was waiting for. And so he told Moses that it would be as he had requested. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. 
We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.